Welcome to Original Reporting, where we look at incentives in the media ecosystem for high-quality original journalism. I'm Tomer Ovadia, and in this last episode of the series, we survey a range of ideas that could help improve incentives for original reporting. Quick disclaimer, this podcast is the result of my night visiting Neiman Fellowship at Harvard University, where I studied these dynamics for one month while on leave from my day job. The podcast is not intended to be an exhaustive or conclusive report, and while I normally am employed as a software engineer working on Google News, Google had no role in the creation of this podcast or in my decision to participate in this fellowship, and any opinions I express in the podcast are solely my own. We start with parallels between news and fashion. I'm Johanna Blakely. I'm the managing director of the Norman Lear Center, which is a think tank at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. In 2010, Dr. Blakely gave a TED Talk titled Lessons from Fashion's Free Culture. In the fashion industry, there's very little intellectual property protection. Now, the reason for this, the reason that the fashion industry doesn't have any copyright protection is because the courts decided long ago that apparel is too utilitarian to qualify for copyright protection. What I'm going to argue today is that because there's no copyright protection in the fashion industry, fashion designers have actually been able to elevate utilitarian design, things to cover our naked bodies, into something that we consider art. I reached out to her to understand if there are parallels between the fashion and news industries when it comes to copying. She said there is no question that, unlike fashion, journalism does have copyright protection, but that in the digital age, the inability to monetize copies of news makes the ecosystem work as if copyright doesn't exist. I read to her the start of Jeff Jarvis's 2007 article mentioned in episode one, titled New Rule, Cover What You Do Best, Link to the Rest. I asked if she agreed with him. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think he's doing, he's suggesting, rightly so, Uh, exactly what fashion designers do, right? It's essential for them to develop a signature style, to develop a certain line that would not be replicated elsewhere. I see. There has to be some special spin. There has to be some special approach. There has to be some special backstory. There has to be an emotional vibe that is somehow different and differentiating in the marketplace from all other purveyors of this content who have no copyright protection over their work. And neither do you. (laughs) (laughs) So the only reason that people are going to be interested in your work is if you're offering something that nobody else is offering. Stuart Weitzman is a very successful shoe designer. He has complained a lot about people copying him. But in one interview I read, He said, you know, it's really forced him to up his game. He had to come up with new ideas, new things that would be hard to copy. He came up with this Bowdoin wedge heel that has to be made out of steel or titanium. If you make it from some sort of cheaper material, it'll actually crack in two. It forced him to be a little more innovative. And that actually reminded me of jazz great Charlie Parker. Um, I don't know if you've heard this anecdote, but I have. He said that one of the reasons he invented bebop was that he was pretty sure that white musicians wouldn't be able to replicate the sound. He wanted to make it too difficult to copy. 
And that's what fashion designers are doing all the time. They're trying to put together a signature look, an aesthetic that reflects who they are. When people knock it off, everybody knows because they've put that look out on the runway and it's a coherent aesthetic. I asked if Dr. Blakely could think of analogies between this and the news industry. The more direct analogy to the Stuart Wiseman example and the Charlie Parker example is that the successful uh, news reporter will have a unique voice, will have unique access to sources that other people don't have access to. I see. That they will have a certain kind of acumen at discovering things that other people haven't discovered. People who know how to break stories. People who know how to smell something fishy and investigate further and figure it out. These are the people who rise to the top. And these are the people who get the Pulitzer Prizes. Um, and it's often because they have news operations that are supporting them. But quite often it's because of the singular talent that they have to network with people who have information, who for whatever reason give up their information to this person. I see. Because they are trustworthy, because they are engaging, who knows? This is not unlike the world of comedy. <clears throat> I don't know if you know that jokes also can't be copyright protected. So when one-liners were really popular, everybody stole them from one another. But now we have a different kind of comic. They develop a persona, a signature style, much like fashion designers. And their jokes, much like the fashion designs by a fashion designer, really only work within that aesthetic. If somebody steals the joke from Larry David, for instance, it's not as funny. Dr. Blakely described how in other creative industries, being known as a copier could hurt your reputation. There's a brutal reputational system in operation in most creative industries, whether you're talking about painters or sculptors or comedians or fashion designers, chefs. Um, you know, once it's apparent that you're stealing ideas from other people, then your reputation suffers and presumably your business suffers. In the previous episode, we learned about the subscription funnel, in which traffic to free content by a publisher gives them an opportunity to convert new subscribers to their paid content. Here's a parallel to fashion. It's exactly the same sort of idea that ends up working for fashion designers in a knockoff economy. And Part of it is not just the knockoffs, but it's also the licensed versions at cheaper price points. So it's Target offering you Carl Lagerfeld. Um, you have a chance to buy it at a lower price point. It's not a knockoff. Lagerfeld was actually behind it, but it's a cheaper product that allows you to start enjoying the Chanel aesthetic and creates in your mind potentially a longing for the actual stuff, I see. Uh, the real Chanel. And it's also the case in terms of the merchandising that a lot of these uh, high-level fashion designers do, where they'll have a perfume or they'll have a wallet or a keychain, something that's at a lower price point that allows you to participate in their brand and everything that it means in an emotional sense and in a social status sense, and build a sort of longing for something more. She had also previously described how fireworks and food do not have copyright protection in part because they do not have a fixed physical presence. The fireworks disappear and the food is eaten. 
I asked her if there are parallels to the concept of evergreen news, or in other words, news that has a long shelf life. I imagine that a lot of the value of producers of music and film is associated with the content that they own copyright to. I mean, you mentioned Disney and its ownership of Mickey Mouse. Does that have parallels to news content, especially when it comes to evergreen content? Yes, I think so. And I think that's the problem. I see. Okay. <laughs> but there's not a lot of news content that's evergreen. I see. I mean, news from 1872 is really mostly important to a historian. But it's very rare that the average news consumer is going to need a news story from 1872. Okay. But when it comes to literature, we do have a canon. Um, with film also, there is still a desire to view films that were made in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. A lot of production studios in Los Angeles, for instance, their primary market value is based on the value of their catalog. And is that the case for news and, and, and maybe copyrights that publishers own over prior news content? Or not so much. Right. They, they own it, but who? how can they monetize it? Who uses it? Yeah. Who wants to read old news? You know, <laughs> it, it's, yeah. it's a very deep and critical social value and cultural value. But really, the only people who are using it typically are historians. Dr. Blakely argued on the TED stage that the culture of copying enriches the creative process. Because there's no copyright protection in this industry, there's a very open and creative ecology of creativity. Unlike their creative brothers and sisters who are sculptors or photographers or filmmakers or musicians, fashion designers can sample from all their peers' designs. They can take any element from any garment from the history of fashion and incorporate it into their own design. She drew parallels from this to news. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's really about having the power of a curator. Right. Which, to some degree, that's how I defined fashion designers as well. That they could sample from an infinite uh, history of fashion design. They didn't have to ask for permission. They didn't have to pay a licensing fee. And they used all of these fashion elements from the past to create something that spoke to a contemporary consumer. So their line of clothing is probably not, quote unquote, unique. It's a combination of a bunch of elements that were already floating out there. But the fact that they chose them and put them in that order was what gave them meaning and value in the marketplace. I see. And so you could apply that to lots of different industries, including, of course, the editors of a news publication who are making a thousand choices, hopefully very informed ones, about what kinds of news their readers want, what kinds of news their readers need, and to try to provide a place in the online marketplace where their consumer could come to them and, and trust that they are getting the news that they need. And of course, that would include news that the Houston Chronicle cannot afford to research and report on their own. Uh, I see. But they're picking one AP article out of the thousands that might be available from Reuters and all these other sources. They're making a choice about what they think is most relevant and resonant with their user. And that's what the consumer should be paying for 
is that curatorial expertise. Dr. Blakely has also noted how musicians addressed piracy in part by allowing their online content to spread and serve as marketing for live events like concerts. So creating live events around digital content that you can't monetize in an optimal way is a great way to sort of recoup your costs and to build a more loyal following. And you can do that in video games. You can do that with film, with movie, with television. Uh, photographers can do it. Anybody who's creating creative content could create a community around a live event and charge people for attendance. Sure enough, the news industry has recently experimented with events in which people can meet journalists. Yes, I must say I was totally right. She also said that while Spotify saved music labels from bankruptcy, this hasn't been enough for small-time musicians. This reminded me of journalists. Musicians are still really suffering, except for the really big names. The kinds of proceeds, the the kinds of royalties, um, licensing fees that they're receiving from platforms like Spotify usually will not support a living artist. And so they're on the road all the time. You know, they're doing concerts. Um, But I think a lot of artists who did not have the opportunity to break at all because they had no access to distribution before these digital platforms were in place, a lot of those artists are in a better place to actually make a living out of it if they achieve that niche audience that they require in order to be able to have profitable concert tours. And so they are circulating their music for free online as a kind of calling card, as a, as a form of marketing, basically, so that they can get people to events, they can sell them swag, and uh, they can potentially break through and be discovered you know, by a music label that would give them a proper contract. In our last parallel, Dr. Blakely speaks about how the lack of IP protection in fashion speeds up trends and how this, too, has parallels for the news industry. There is a parallel there, and I think there's a dark side to both, um, to it for both industries. So fast fashion really posed a profound and sometimes existential challenge to fashion designers because it was harder for them to stay on top because they were being knocked off so quickly. I see. But it was very good for the consumers because that meant that these fashion designers had to double down and be more creative and produce more material and just fire up that market even more. So there was just much more competition in the marketplace. And it did result in the purchasing of a lot more clothes um, from all the data that I've seen. So it's been good financially for the industry, but not easy. And it's not like they were able to just rest on their laurels and collect the paychecks. It became more competitive. And I'd say that a similar thing has happened in the news industry, where there's ever more consumption of news, but that has driven faster news cycles, which have made it difficult for especially thoughtful purveyors of news, to keep up because they don't necessarily have the vetting time that they had before. And so a lot more mistakes appear to be made now I see. Uh, than they used to on slower publishing cycles. She said that while there are many parallels to other creative industries, the news industry arguably has it hardest. Investigative news reporting and news reporting journalism in general as a project is probably more in peril in this digital marketplace than most other uh, forms of content creation. 
Next, we consider whether there are any lessons news can learn from an industry in which original content is crucial. Can Netflix keep up all this original content to sustain its business model going forward? I mean, people Cindy like... Holland, the VP of uh, Original Content over at Netflix, along with... Natalia. I believe Hulu is spending around $2.5 billion on original programming. First, we hear from Professor Martha Minow at Harvard Law School, who is the former dean at the law school and recently published a report on the changing ecosystem of news. You know, Charles Dickens, I think, would have a great time now because it's the best of time and worst of time in media. So it's the best of time for original uh, uh, entertainment media. Um, the amount of resources that are being devoted to the creation of new fictional media, particularly if there is a fantasy dimension uh, or a scandalous dimension, it, it, I think is almost unparalleled. Uh, and it's upstarts like Netflix that are investing five, six X times the amount of the legacy media uh, of the networks, for example. So it's really the golden era, particularly for what we once would have called television. So it doesn't translate into news coverage. It's a very different set of ideas, mentalities. And again, the cross-subsidy that once actually helped to support the news. Uh, it's not going to be there when they're produced in very different ways, very different places. You know, news has been a loss leader uh, for broadcast journalism for some time. Very few news shows make any money. And it's only because they are bundled together in a network or a conglomerate that they're able to be uh, supported. Um, and uh, Netflix is not in the news business. But what about original documentaries on Netflix? Here's longtime investigative reporter and recently retired UC Berkeley journalism professor Lowell Bergman. So just because you have multiple uh, video on demand outlets and there is a surge in the market and the buying of, quote, original content, doesn't mean that there is also at the same time more than just a commercial interest or even an aesthetic interest in the in the product that goes on in its creation. So, for example, I've seen many independent documentaries made or, or documentary series made that uh, alleged you think by documentary it means documents and has some kind of substance behind it. But I've seen many of them that, you know, uh, are just simply advocacy vehicles and, and only tell you what they want to tell you. And they win Oscars, for instance, right? And but an Oscar doesn't mean that it's reliable information. It means it's an artful film. Some people I spoke with offer technological solutions to tracking and monetizing original content. Meg Marco mentioned that ProPublica had tried placing a tracking code on their content to understand its reach and impact. Carrie Lowerman at Forbes mentioned that the app TikTok allows users to see the origins of a meme. In my mind, that's always sort of like that would be ideal. Like. If you were able to go to Google News and find it, like click on first story, um, you know, or Apple News, or you know, the you know, somehow immediately find the very first primary source of a story, that would be great. That would that would be exciting. This made me think of cross-posting across communities in Reddit or retweets in Twitter, where there is a built-in way to recirculate someone else's content and maybe add your thoughts. Here's another idea. In December 2019, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey tweeted, quote, 
Twitter is funding a small independent team of up to five open source architects, engineers, and designers to develop an open and decentralized standard for social media. The goal is for Twitter to ultimately be a client of the standard. Here's Jeff Jarvis, the associate professor at CUNY, speaking about this. So a few things about that. One is I think it's very interesting that Jack Dorsey has talked recently in a, in a, in a tweet that he did about setting off some brilliant people to think about basically open sourcing Twitter, which of course it could have been years ago, but now it might be again. And Dorsey's benefit could be that he could have a much larger universe of conversation to add value to, to find the experts, to find the smart people. Jeff Jarvis also mentioned the concept of reverse syndication, in which content can travel with its method of monetization. For example, ads. I argued for a while for a method of what I call reverse syndication. What if content could travel with its business model attached like a YouTube video? And the YouTube model is, doesn't matter where you see the video, it's going to have a YouTube ad on it, and you're probably going to want to watch more, and you end up at YouTube. So why don't we set up news that way? He said he was once involved in a project in New Jersey that attempted this, and that while it didn't succeed, he thinks something similar could still be viable. We didn't find a way to compensate the distributors for the value they brought in distribution, which we should have done. But that model, I think, still has some potential and some value uh, to rethink this so that, that, you know, whether it's Politico or the Washington Post, in the old days, you would syndicate their content by renting it, by paying them. Reverse syndication would say, no, they give you the content for free, but you share revenue. We should be setting up structures like that, but we don't have them. And, 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 and actually, this discussion helped lead to AMP, Accelerated Mobile Pages, at Google. We had a, a Google Newsgeist event in Helsinki where Richard Gingras, the senior VP now of news at Google, and I were talking about this in different terms. I think he called it portable content units. And we had a, an open discussion with a lot of, of journalists and publishers in the room, and there was much enthusiasm. And Richard went back to Mountain View, where uh, Dave Besbris was working on the standard that would become AMP, and, and they fit together. AMP is, in essence, a way to not only speed up web page, but also to make them embeddable uh, with brand and with revenue attached wherever you want. And I think there's some potential there. I asked Professor Jarvis what he thought platforms could do to improve incentives in the ecosystem. What I wish they would do is challenge us. I wish they would challenge us to rethink news natively for a new reality. He contrasted what he thinks platforms currently do and what they should do. So let's talk about what they actually do. So, so, so Snap says, no, you can't um, repurpose the article you already write. You've got to do something new in Snap, which I think is exactly what they should do. I see. Con contrast that with, let's say, Facebook and Instant Articles, uh, which I thought was a fine idea because it came out uh, actually a little before AMP and helped inspire, I think, the rush to finish AMP. Um, but it didn't fit in the world of Facebook. Right? I'm in a kaleidoscopic experience of kittens and friends and parties and now stop and read this thousand-word article. <laughs> and then go back to the kaleidoscope, right? What was Facebook was trying to make friends with publishers who were using their political clout against them. And they tried to find a home, to create a home for what the publishers already did, which is articles. And they're doing it again with a news tab. And they put all the monetization there. They never forced us to say, no, use Facebook natively, socially, to figure out how to serve communities. Um, Google. Uh, I think it's been very good uh, uh, with Newsgeist and the Google News Lab, and, and Google has been much, much better 
in the last five, six years uh, in listening to publishers, collaborating with them, working with them. It's really very impressive what they've done. However, they also try to suck up to the publishers. So the publishers complain and say, uh, we're trying to do paywalls, help us. So Google does a structure which is very good that you can pay with Google and now you can contribute with Google and, and that's great. But I think that becomes potentially a bit of a um, non-market interference almost in the publishers. What we're seeing is the publishers, unless you're the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Wall Street Journal, paywalls aren't working that well for you. The LA Times had 150,000 paid subs. They had a goal of 300,000 last year. They gained 53 is all they gained, and they lost most of those and ended up at, at, at gaining only 17,000 after churn. So they're going around saying, help us with subscription, but maybe that's not the right model. Maybe Google should argue with us. I want Google, especially, also Facebook and Twitter and Microsoft, to bring their best brains to the larger task of how do we inform the public? How do we, my, I changed my definition of journalism because I have tenure and I can do obnoxious <laughs> stuff like that. So my definition of journalism now, my mission for journalism, is to convene communities into respectful, informed, and productive conversation. Informed is still there in the middle, but respectful is a necessary precursor as we see these days. How do we make strangers less strange? How do we, how do we not demonize the other? How do we fight against that kind of hatred? That's part of our job now and productive. How do we actually get somewhere and not just say to society, we told you what's screwed up, you deal with it. Um, and so there's movements like constructive journalism uh, and solutions journalism that I think are, are, are helpful in that way. So what I would love to see is the best brains of Google, Facebook, and Twitter, and Microsoft, which are damn good brains, sit down and say, at a very high level, what's our goal? Forget how we've done it. What's our goal? What are the new mechanisms and means we have to listen to people in new ways? What are the new mechanisms and means we have to understand how they make decisions? He suggested learning from other disciplines like anthropology and neuroscience. So I would love to have confabulations with some of those disciplines and some of the brilliant um, engineers and thinkers at the platforms and some journalists to zero-based journalism, to start from the ashes, which is what Alden is going to leave them as, and say, let's not try to preserve what was. Let's create what's possible now. We'll close out this podcast series in the same way we opened, with A.G. Sulzberger, the publisher of The New York Times, speaking at the 2019 Code Conference. But can I say one thing on, on local journalism, which is I actually think, I think that the platforms have had a really profound blind spot um, and it's about the word journalism itself, um, which has been encompassing. And I think, I think there has been this premium on innovation in journalism, um, you know, and making your journalism digital. And I think we're actually losing, losing track of like, what, what is the core ingredient that we actually care about in journalism? What is the thing that matters here? The thing that our founders worried about, the thing that, um, you know, those of us who use phrases like, you know, hold power to account and bear witness are actually talking about, and it's reporting. And the thing that's disappearing, not just at the local level, but even at the national level to some, to some degree, is reporting resources. And that's because reporting is way more expensive than other forms of journalism. Other forms I mean, of journalism. Making a phone call, asking someone a question. Yeah, making a phone call, asking, going to the place. 
um, suing the government for documents, reading all those documents, you know, finding, you know, people who can leverage their expertise to help you understand and see the things that you might not be able to see in those documents. Um, you know, a, a good story, you know, can take weeks, months, um, you know, in the case of our Pulitzer Prize winning series on, on, um, uh, the president's finances, it took basically two years of work um, and hundreds of thousands of documents and hundreds of interviews to get to, to, to this information that was not in the public space. You know, and, and there's another form of journalism that just sort of repurposes. It reads that story and says, here are 10 takeaways of that series. There's some value I, to that. There is value in it. And, and I won't, and I, and, and we will do that sometimes. We're actually, we did it for our own series. You know, aggregate your own stuff. We're, 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 we're doing a bit of that. And then there's, and then there's another form of journalism commentary, which is like, here's why this is a big deal, or here's why this isn't a big deal at all. That also can add a lot of value, right? We do that every day with our columnists. But someone example. has to make the news first. But it all is downstream of reporting. And that, that is the thing that is most fragile in the ecosystem. Huge thanks to the Neiman Foundation for supporting the research behind this podcast, especially Leah Becerra for helping make it possible and the Neiman Fellows for their invaluable guidance. 